Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's Homo Superior. Hey, everyone. I'm Kaylin. Clark. And we are so excited to be talking to Steve Orlando today. It's our very first creator interview. Uh, Steve, we're so happy to have you. Uh, first of all, if you haven't read any Steve Orlando comics, shame on you. Fix that immediately. We highly recommend all of his comics, but especially Midnighter, which was his first DC work, Party and Prey, a queer horror graphic novel he recently co-wrote with Steve Fox, X-Men Curse of the Man-Thing, and his short story in Marvel Voices, Pride, which introduced the brand new queer character, Somnus. And second of all, if you've been living under a rock, you may not know that he's going to be taking over Marauders in January, along with artist Chris Lee. Steve, again, we're so happy to have you. Uh, say a few words, please. Uh, no, I mean, you, you did you did lay it out very well. Uh, I, I'm excited to talk X-Men. I'm just getting into the the, the sort of like the hustle of, of, of X-Men promotion. So you, you, you got me at the right time. I have a lot to say. Um, and yeah, I mean, you picked out some great work to, to give people a look at my, at the type of thing I do. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention Kill a Man as well. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, that'll soon be supplanted by Marauders. Uh, but a good fit for this podcast, it is an LGBTQ plus, uh, mixed martial arts book. Uh, I try to always do something different and not repeat myself. So that's why you'll see if you're listening you know, there's a lot of genres in there. You know, we went from we went from uh, a young adult book about losing your pet and getting closure to a gay slasher book and Party and Prey. And those are just two one month apart. So uh, if anything, uh, I'm trying to give you folks uh, a diversity of, of uh, genre when I do my work. And uh, that is Certainly going to continue uh, with 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 what we're going to talk about today with my work in the X-Men office, because it is something a little different than I've done before. I've never done pirate comics. I've done action, but I've never done pirates. And uh, we've certainly never gone uh, where we're going to go in this book. Well, what I love is um, I've read a lot of your work, but there's still so much more that I've got to get through. So uh, I'm really excited. One, obviously for Marauders, but also uh, a lot of uh, your other library that like I'm really looking forward to, to delving into. So you've been writing comics for a number of years, including some of my favorite characters of DC. I'm known as the DC guy on the podcast, even though we mostly focus on X-Men and Marvel. And you're finally going to be writing an X book. We, we, we've been waiting for this day for a while. Uh, <laughs> if you've been listening to our podcast, seriously, uh, we wanted more queer writers uh, on the X-Men. And, you know, I, I personally have always said it'd be great if like Steve Orlando could, could be one of those writers. But I really need to know one thing immediately. How do you get so many likes from your thirst trap photos? Because our social media presence is as sexy as a, new, a nun's funeral. <laughs> uh, well, I have yeah, because of the realities of being a comic creator, you'll notice that those photos have somewhat become uh, more, uh, they've been more demure in the past six months. Uh, I mean, the reality is, uh, you know, I, <laughs> that's my time away <laughs> from writing, you know, like, so I, I, I have to, it is ridiculous to spend your life exercising in your office, you know, because we're, we're still in the throes of a pandemic. So like, this has been my coping mechanism. At least I can share my madness with people. That's the real answer. Cause I really, am just like sitting here in uh, the office of my house with a bunch of like bro-esque exercise equipment that I bought. And of course it's absurd. I consider what my neighbors see across the street all the time. Uh, so at minimum, I can share that with all of you. Love it. Um, you speaking of your madness, um, my favorite, 
X-Men character is Polaris because I'm nuts. Do you have a favorite character growing up now, et cetera? Oh, well, those answers are different. When I was a kid, it was very, it was, it was sort of like the very one-to-one thing. And my favorite character was Colossus because I'm, I'm predominantly Russian despite having an Italian last name. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I still love Colossus. I still think at a baseline, he's just cool, you know? But in the time since, there are obviously many other uh, mutant characters that I've come to love, especially as someone who both got in and was mentored by Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly. So I'd be remiss not to mention Mero, who a lot of people know I love. We put her in the, the X-Men issue of Curse of the Man thing. And I was vote, I voted for her uh, for X-Men uh, for, for in the last election. I know we're not supposed to talk about who we voted for, but in the X-Men election, you can. Uh, and... <laughs> And I also love, uh, I also, being a guy who came over from D.C., I was like hopscotching back in the 90s. Um, I came over, I followed Grant uh, when they went on New X-Men from Justice League. So I'd be remiss not to mention people like Beak and, of course, like Cassandra Nova and things like that. Nice. And do you have, do you have a favorite run or storyline? Obviously, you just mentioned a bunch of them, but was there one that, like, definitively was like, this is my favorite X run well, that I mean, changed me? changed me uh well i think i you know i met siegel and kelly because i loved their run and i still think it's underappreciated uh and and they by luck of the draw or whatever you know i wasn't behind the scenes then they brought back characters who were some of my favorites onto the main team you know the first x-men content i took in was actually the pride of the x-men animated pilot that didn't mm-hmm. become the show yeah. To the extent that when the, the show that did go started in the 90s, I like I hadn't even read many comics, didn't have a comic store. So I was like, why is Dazzler suddenly from the South and flying around? And I only knew that they both had a jacket because clearly you can't have two women with a jacket. Uh, <laughs> so, but that said, like, I do think that the run is highly underappreciated uh, and, and, I, and I think about it a lot. And, it would be that way whether or not they brought uh, Kate, Nightcrawler, and Colossus back to the X-Men, but that certainly helped because that was a big moment for me. It's probably even when I started picking it up, if I think back. Um, and of course, as I said, you know, no surprises for people knowing me. I love, I love especially the intro is for Extinction Arc with, uh, with, with Grant and, uh, and Frank Whiteley. Uh, but I'm trying to think if there's some surprising things. If I go back further, I can easily tell you that my favorite run of like the quote unquote, I, you know, uh, of, of the Claremont decades long era would probably be the Australian era. So like I can at least mm-hmm. say like that time, especially I think that was mostly Silvestri and uh, and Wills Portasio, who I've known for a long time and is super, super nice. I love that. And bizarrely, one of the first X-Men back issues that I ever picked up had the Mirror Island X-Men in it. So I still have like a weird soft spot. It's not even a story arc. It's one issue. But like I, I have a soft spot for the Mirror Island X-Men and the fact I it was probably Claremont that wrote it. But I distinctly remember that like Amanda Sefton's not that good at magic yet. So she tries to make them all costumes, but they all turn into like bondage outfits. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's Claremont right there. I know, but like, but it was like so unsettled. It's like, oh, I got it wrong. Sorry, guys. Like, I'll try again. And then, and then they get real efforts. But like for two seconds, everybody's wearing stuff that you would see at Folsom. And it was, uh, it did a lot to my brain, like 1989 or whatever it came out, apparently. Maybe that's why I'm here. There you go. Uh, I feel, Steve, I feel like we, uh, you and me specifically, like 
I think had shared interests as far as the X-Books go, because I came in in the Outback era, specifically Inferno, and like like seeing like, you know, Madeline Pryor with her like scantily clad outfit. And then, then more importantly, seeing Alex Summers as a Goblin Prince was great. And then I thought that like both Siegel and Kelly's runs were, were, were underrated and cut short. But I, I want to ask you about Marauder specifically. Like what drew you uh, to this book, you know, uh, and, and joining this, you know, stable of writers who are part of the Krakoan era, as we're calling them. I was going to say, you mentioned wanting queer writers in the X-Men office, but we kind of have, I shouldn't say but, and we kind of have an abundance of riches right now. There's probably more of us than there are not, um, which is probably never happened before, to be quite honest. Um, and I'm and I'm not counting Chris Claremont going to the Hellfire Club, you know, like, uh, <laughs> so... So it is a really interesting, I mean, like there are a lot of great opinions and a lot of great points of view in the office and some that you folks don't know about yet because I keep forgetting that though my news has out because we're starting with Marauders Annual, there's more news to come and it, and it, and it, and it always, I almost always blow it on these podcasts because I'm like, oh, you guys don't know about this other stuff. Um, but you will soon. Um, that said, why Marauders? Well, you know, I, I already loved the book. Uh, I, I loved the book because I, I did use House of X powers effects to get back into X-Men. I'd been away for a while. That's a little bit of a massaging of the truth though. I was on when Ed did, was it, was his event called Extermination? Uh, that happened Ed Brissons, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came, back with that Ross, yeah. I came back with that because Ed is a friend uh, and, and, I, and I actually think that was a really tight series uh, and just, you know, uh, a fun way to tie everything up before this all happened. But then I stuck around and Marauders appealed to me from the start uh, because folks who follow me on social know uh, perhaps that uh, I'm, I'm an asshole, but not 100% a dick. And one of the things that <laughs> I, I do try to do is I, I give a lot to World Central Kitchen, my friend Jose Andres's uh, disaster relief organization. And I've also done it myself. I, was, I, I went down to Panama City during uh, the hurricane a couple of years ago. And I was there, you know, helping them feed people in, you know, when in, in towns that were completely condemned. So I, I've done that firsthand. So when, when Marauders started out and I saw that it was going to have this two-pronged mission of delivering the medicines, you know, to, and, and doing hellfire trading stuff, and as well, like rescuing mutants who couldn't get to Krakow for one reason or another, I was already interested in that book. And, and when they came around, and just because of where his interest took him, Jerry had focused a lot on the Hellfire trading dramas. It just seemed like a natural fit to me because, you know, even if I was building a book from the ground up, this would still be something I wanted to talk about because I've done it. So it was even better that we had this team with an established mission that was right in line with something I think is really important. Um, well, we're going to jump right into characters now. Um, Tempo became a fan favorite in that inaugural X-Men vote. Like everybody in line is like, you know, vote if it's either her or um, Mero. And considering she is somewhat of a clean state, besides the fact she was a not that evil member of the MLK, ML, MLK, excuse me, uh, Mutant Liberation Front, and she was the only one to die in Age of X, there isn't really much else to you that we have about her. So what drew you to this? What drew you to her? What drew the X office to her? Because she's being mentioned quite a lot now. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we do incept ourselves a lot, like, I guess, as a spoiler, I would tell you. So, like, it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to not have someone's enthusiasm be infectious. Uh, for me, I just, I, 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 
yes, of course, like I love the look. I think it's a very cool look. Uh, although I sometimes wonder if that's only for comics readers. I just saw the cover to our issue one and I sent it to my neighbor and she's like, who's that walking Emmy in the back of your team? And I was just like, <laughs> fuck you. Uh, <laughs> but I think what is interesting about Tempo, I, I, I love exploring characters with time powers. I find it a fun writing challenge to really think about what she can and can't do. Cause I think a lot of people get time powers wrong, which is, you know, like I shouldn't say wrong. It's just not how I would do it. There's no rules. There's no like big book of writing time travel mm -hmm. or no kinesis. But I think like her percep her perceptions are uh, with her powers very interesting. And on top of that, yeah, she used to be somewhat excuse me, of a, she was in a zealotous team, but she was not the most zealotous, you know, she ended up abandoning them. So I think that her perspective on Krakoa also is interesting from a character standpoint, because she has, she, she has to know that like a lot of the ideas here are a couple steps away from going too far. So I think that uh, it, it's an exciting point of view to have on the team because yeah, she's gonna, when things start to feel a little familiar to the MLF days, like she, she's gonna be there to say it. And walking home from Brent's one night, I did some math, and it seems that it takes Tempo about three weeks to age Krakow and whiskey 15 years. So what is she doing for those three weeks in distillery? Oh, Sitting well. around? Uh, we like to think that she can do that without being there. I hope so, because that'd be boring as hell. Um, <laughs> although we have a thing we're doing in the book where she could probably do that faster now if she wanted to. Although I have weird opinions of Krakow and whiskey, because like... I used to be a wine and spirits person. So like th there's a whole book I'll write someday that no one will ever read about how true spirits aficionados don't want uh, crack and whiskey because it's not the same as letting it happen the natural way. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because when I was selling spirits, there are some guys that invented essentially like a particle accelerator that lets them do the same thing to rum that Tempo does. Uh, you put the whiskey in and you put like wood particles in and it breaks everything down at a time. This is real. And it breaks everything down at an atomic level and makes something that is, uh, for, on a molecular sense, identical to like a 20-year-old rum, but it only takes like a week. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be people, people that say it's not the same, you know. And so there, there's a very boring, like, <laughs> spirit specialist one-shot that I'll never write that, that has deep opinions and, and deep goes deeper into Krakow and whiskey than any of you ever expected, or really any of you want, by the way, as well. Trust me, I will read that. I actually love, <laughs> love, love whiskey. Love it. I know Brent does too. Uh, and Clark, you know, lived in Ireland I love for a scotch, while. So, yes. Yeah. I, and Scott, like, I love all kinds of whiskey, to be honest. Uh, so I would read the shit out of that. Uh, but we spent a little time on tempo. But, you know, is there another Marauder character that you really, really enjoy writing? And has anyone sort of surprised you uh, as you started writing the series? Well, the first answer is a cop-out answer because the eighth member that folks don't know about yet has easily been my favorite. Um, but like that also hasn't been a surprise because I picked them and I knew it would be really fun. Uh, but you'll see that soon enough. <laughs> the, the surprise for me has been Kate uh, because uh, the way that she's been repositioned in the Crack Cohen era is so much more uh, sort of like swashbuckling and, 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 um, confident and there's a swagger to her that I think is really really fun that you know I shouldn't I don't know if it's a surprise because I, I took it all in it's part of her character when I was reading up on everything before I came on and catching up 
but at the same time, like I'm enjoying it more than I even thought I would, you know, because it, it's wild to me to know at no fault of the creators of, of uh, you know, that that content. But when your first X-Men interaction is part of the X-Men, where she's basically scared of everything, uh, it is it is really exciting to see where she is right now in, in the current context. And she's I mean, she's the lead ass kicker of, of the Marauders. She says that in the annual. And I think that, it you know, that's not something you would have believed her saying maybe 30 years ago in real time or, you know, a while ago in comics time. But she's taken to prisoners now. And, and I really enjoy that. Like, I think it's been a great turn for her. So a lot of your work as a metaphor, by the way, obviously she is taking prisoners because they can't kill humans, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Otherwise they go in the pit. Um, so a lot of your work, like commanders in crisis, which I just started re reading recently, you know, you find creative solutions to current problems, like the spread of misinformation, climate change, things like that, like very like ripped from the headlines without getting into spoilers. Um, are there any like sort of broad societal trends you're planning on tapping into, uh, for Marauders? Well, so, I mean, it's a rescue book, so it's a little different than Commanders in Crisis uh, in, like, in, in its mission. And really, like, the first arc of Marauders is a rescue, essentially, on all of mutant history, which you guys will see uh, when the book starts coming out. But that said, the annual introduces our version of Brimstone Love. And... Uh, there, there is, there, there is some through the lens of of Marvel and through the lens of the Krakoan era. I do find him very topical because what he does, pardon me, is sort of prey on indignance and prey on feelings of insult and 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 grievance in the way that should be very topical to 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 uh, how people are manipulated in the present day and in in that way as well. Like it's all bad faith, uh, but he whips people up. Uh, and you'll see what his angle is, uh, you know, when, when the annual comes out. But I did put sort of that, that sort of like social, social hucksterism uh, that is very, very dangerous when you just tell people that, you know, everything going on is someone else's fault is certainly there for him. And I, I'm actually very happy with it because it's hard to make a villain in a lot of ways in the current era because all the, you know, half, half the people are on the quiet council. Um, right. But he has a perspective that as long as Krakoa is around is going to be very lasting. Uh, and, and I'm very happy with that. And it's something, yeah, that he uses to manipulate people's basis instincts of, of paranoia and insecurity uh, that should not be dissimilar to anyone that has seen our, our current social moment. <laughs> um, political once again, your Marauders team is super queer. Kate Pride recently came out as bisexual. Dokken is clearly a very openly bisexual man. Sovinus that you've written is out and about. Cyclops, clear gay icon. How important for you as a queer person is to write these characters and how does their queerness come into play in their characterization and in the book itself coming forward? Uh, well, I mean, I think it, it, it is a core part of all these characters, but I mean, if, I mean, if people have read interviews with me, like I am, it can't be, I never set out just to put queer characters in a book. And, and mm -hmm. if you know me, that shouldn't be shocking because that is just, that just reeks of tokenism to me. And, and I don't personally think that that comes across well. That said, um, when I write these characters, like how is it going to affect the, the book moving forward? I mean, we are not solely this one aspect of our lives and neither mm -hmm. of these characters, but certainly it's going to influence all their, uh, all their, 
decisions. It's going to influence their perspective on events because they do have, in a comic sense, you know, an intersectional vector that not everyone else has. So to me, like our, my job with any of this work is to make these characters fully fledged, uh, well-rounded characters. And that's not to say we ignore that they're queer. I'm not like, I'm probably one of the loudest of those types of uh, creators, uh, certainly the most vulgar uh, on social media. <laughs> but at the same time, like if all you know about these characters is that, then I'm not doing my job correctly because that's not how we are in real life with the exception of Joey J who is just gay. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's like he came out of a cauldron of everything I didn't want to see represented. Uh, it's he's, he's my bogger, basically, is what I'm saying. But uh, joking aside, like, yes, it's going to inform the actions of these characters and the perspectives and the way that they speak with each other. Uh, but it also, like in my books, it will never be all you know about them. And it will also not be all they talk about because... You know, I think that gives the wrong perspective. Representation is vitally important, but also if it paints us as stereotypes or one dimensional, then it's it's kind of, it, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot, you know? So similar to how I try to always, you know, to tell different types of queer stories across different genres, I don't want to repeat the same thing and I don't want to do what people expect. Uh, and in my case, at least it's always worked out because what's true to me, uh, tends to be like a, a pretty three-dimensional perspective of these things. I mean, I joke about Joey J because I just, I, I laugh at his self-promotion and, you know, I, I must watch all drag race things uh, for the culture. But I think that, you know, when my responsibility, when I do these things, it's twofold. And one is to, yes, like push forward representation, but also do so in a way that shows folks that we are fully fledged people, that we are human, uh, all of these things that sound basic. But the thing to remember is that, you know, like sometimes this might be the first interaction some reader has, you know, with, with a queer person that they know, because obviously like we're lurking everywhere, we're like Cylons, but <laughs> like, so they, you know, you never know, like there's, there for many people, this they've obviously met a lot of folks like us, but some people might read this and be like, oh, like, I never, I never saw them, saw these types of folks humanized in this way. Maybe they live, you know, in the ass of some mountain and they just like, have, you know, I don't know how they get Wi-Fi there. But the point is like, this could be someone's first interactions. And my job is not only to show us as strong, confident, and powerful, but as, 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 as people with faults, as people that are human, as people that are relatable, because that's, that to me is what real representation should be like. Like we shouldn't just be you know, have plot armor. We shouldn't just be poster children because that's not what we want to be in real life. Yeah, for sure. Um, but kind of staying with this a little bit, um, which X, X character do you think has big queer energy but isn't canonically out just yet? Uh, I mean, I'm the worst person to ask about this because it's <laughs> not how I think, because it's not how I think at all. Uh, so I don't know, like, because the real answer is like, that's also just not the type of person I am. And there's nothing wrong with it, by the way. Like, I'm not denigrating that. Uh, but like, for me, in a, a, as a bisexual person who's constantly told and, and that the, the way that they identify is not real, like, I take whatever someone tells me about their identity at face value until it changes. Uh, 
because I don't really have a right to question that. So it's a comp like that. That's probably a more boring answer than you expected, but it's funny because I it's just, great answer. Cause I just don't think like that. Like, um, and you know, they're comic book characters. They're not real people, but it's just not the way I think because I've so many times had, you know, when I was in college, I was like TAing like 17 or 18 year old freshmen who were like, well, you, you call yourself by, but you'll figure it out eventually. And I was like, motherfucker, you can't even drive after nine. Like, <laughs> who are you? So, right. Uh, but that said, uh, I mean, I'm sure I could, I'm, I'm sure I could um, dust up some answers. Uh, it, it, it's hard for me not to name everyone that were in those Folsom outfits in the Mirror Island team um, <laughs> because they're just like the the bulges were, I mean, like quite prominent. Um, but there's got to be a real answer in there somewhere. You know what? Just for the sake of of giving you a, repu uh, a repulsive answer, I'm going to say that it's Slither. Uh, from oh, the my Mutant gosh. Store because, God, if he was, he'd be very popular. Uh, so... <laughs> good answer yeah so that's, so that's my answer i love it that's perfect um busy boy he is uh who's your favorite character that either won't be or has not yet been um in your marauder series and why is it mama max i do love mama max uh clearly because he was in there uh, i'm really shocked you didn't make a wolf cub joke like that's just a gay thing uh and... i like a, i like a big elephant you see <laughs> With acid vomit powers, though? Yep, like, yep. All right, well, I'm not going to unpack that on live on the air, but um, <laughs> who is my favorite member not on the team? You know, I actually, it's actually really easy because I do really love Mimic, uh, and I have since I was a kid. His costume is absurd. I'm talking the original, like, mm -hmm. orange and red. Mm -hmm. Kind of has, to the extent where, like, there was this gift in the X-Men office and where we were all getting, like, custom mugs or something. And the editor emailed me and it was like, she was like, what X-Men character could you have if you wanted anyone? And I was like, Mimic. And she was just like, why? Like, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, just like, let it be, let it be. Uh, so that is the answer because I do love that guy. I love that he is just like a living Mad Lib of the original five slash original six X-Men members, uh, counting Xavier. And uh, yeah, his costume is absurd. I'll hear nothing about the traditionally thought of as much better version from Exiles. I want the original dude with the wings and the beast feet and everything someday. And the goggles, the, like the Cyclops, oh, yeah. big Cyclops goggles. Huge, bigger, bigger than they have to be, you know, like giant M. I, I want it all. And I also want, uh, I also want uh, double threat from the Earth X X-Men, but also not going to happen. Well, maybe. Wow. We'll That's some deep cuts. I love it. So um, let's move on to the MCU for a second. Uh, we talk about the MCU a lot, and I think everybody knows that Marvel finally has the rights to the X characters. Finally, it's not a 20th Century Fox, which I guess now is owned by Disney. Um, let's say Kevin Feige hires you, Steve Orlando, to introduce the mutants into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How would you do it? <sighs> so it's tough, right? Because there's only so many times you can excuse that they didn't do anything for the past well, however many storyline years, but 15 years. Um, and, you know, the Eternals were already like, well, we were told we can't. Um, <laughs> which I'm very excited for, by the way. Like, not the question you asked me, but I'm no. excited for that. Oh, yeah. Because, like, I, my favorite sci-fi subgenre is giant shit in space. 
Mm-hmm. So like, the minute I saw that like like 2001 monolith ship, I was like, yes, give it to me. Um, I've already decided it's great. Even if it's not great, I'll hear no other arguments. Uh, and much of the internet seems to be arguing about it. Um, that said, you know, like the, the key might be in something like uh, uh, Cross of Swords, X of Swords. Like it'd be very easy to plant all the whole of that community into that conflict and say, oh, well, you know, we've been off fighting this war for the past 50, 100 years or whatever, and now we're back. Uh, and and it's not, it's not like a thing that would let you, you say that, well, we're going to have open the school in Westchester. We'd have to dive right into the Krakoan era. But you know what? I don't necessarily know that that's a problem because there are other things that are, you know, it, it need, they need to be diversified now and they need to be very different. So maybe that is my answer, you know, like you, you, you have this whole backstory that's happened in this other dimensional conflict and you slap that onto all of our characters because the reality is like for folks, for those unicorns that have never read an X-Men comic and only watched the MCU, even though mutants we know are broadly the most popular of this, ver- of this kind of... Um, concept they were you know mcu viewers have already gone through two different types of people that are just born that way the inhumans and now the eternals so however they do mutants i feel like does have to be pretty bold so i mean and and we're in a good era like that but it's it's got to be big and it's got to be far far different especially from inhumans because my opinion notwithstanding that that show did not seem to deliver like they hoped it would uh i really i'm a big fan of the guy that plays black bolt in general uh Mm -hmm. But, you know, I know that that didn't give them everything that they wanted. So, like, I think it is going to have to be necessary, not necessarily what folks would expect if they think they're just going to be like, well, we've been here in Westchester for the past 50 years, not helping. Like, that's not going to really fly. So um, that and introducing the Fantastic Four, they are really going to have to, I feel like you have to have them in action doing something fantastic somewhere. And then they come back and they're just kind of like, what, you know, what is all this? Uh, and I've seen folks suggest that maybe the Fantastic Four basically disappear in the 60s and appear now. Uh, I don't know that that works for the mutants, but some sort of thing where they can sort of begin in media res, I think, is the way you have to go now in a world where we've had Eternals and at humans. So uh, getting beyond um, talking about the X-Books and Marauders, um, we recently read, Clark and I did for sure, uh, Party and Prey, loved it. We actually reviewed it on our regular podcast, which is coming out tomorrow. But, you know, since we're close to Halloween, uh, this episode, by the way, was recorded before Halloween. It's November 1st, if you're listening to it right now. Um, You know, what led you and Steve Fox to collaborate on this book, um, you know, about about all the various sort of aspects that are in the in this graphic novel. Well, I mean, Fox and I had already been working on this young adult book and we are entertained by dodging people's expectations. Uh, so we started putting together some horror pitches and pardon me, this was the one that seemed to sort of come to life the fastest. I think we both had a lot to say about the topic and you know, there are things that... Um, we both try to do, as I said, things that are different and and within reason, you know, not do stories about perfect people doing perfect things and, and avoiding conflict. So for us, if we were going to do uh, a queer focused horror, like it was always going to be something like this, that both, yeah, like this book is full of queer characters, but it has to be because not all of them are positive characters. And what we can't have is obviously we can't just be like the villains roaming around and 
drinking the blood of young people like Peter Thiel. Uh, so we we knew we were going to have to populate it with queer characters, and we didn't want to talk about uh, some some issues of toxicity, you know, that we we face within the community. Um, whether it's ageism or or issues with you know not you know not believing or or demeaning people's chosen identities, um, uh, or of course just the the obsession with youth, uh, which I you know I, yes I said ageism, but I, like obsession with exercise, obsession with appearance, these are all things we wanted to talk about, but do so in a way that yeah was still at its heart like uh, an ode to the '80s horror movies that both Fox and I grew up watching way too, way earlier than we should have, you know, uh, when we were catching them on late night TV. So um, in party, in party and play, as you said, we're made into a movie. Well, would you rather be live action or animated? And who would you cast if it was live action, I should say? God, after the day he had today, probably Brian Cox is Alan. He, he had he had a rough day after that New York Times interview. I think it's everything he's saying sounds awesome in the book itself. Because <laughs> everyone um, he says shit about are people I don't like, so I'm good with it. Except for David Bowie, but he didn't say too many terrible things about him. But no, but but Brian Cox is not actually he a good answer. I just I just needed to make my joke. Uh, I did try to once I tried to get him to punch me in the face at the trick or treat premiere <laughs> like 15 years ago. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. He, he wouldn't not. do it. He wouldn't do it. And the thing is, is I was just like I wanted a story like you know the Seinfeld episode. John Voight bit me. Like that's all. Yeah. I wanted. yeah. I just want to like, oh, Brian Cox punched me in the face, but I couldn't get him to do it. I fucking tried. <laughs> anyway, I was antagonizing the shit out of him too. But anyway, I probably maybe I'm in the book. He'd be like, oh, some little shit at San Diego Comic Con. Anyway, the point is, who would I cast? Uh, Ellen is tough. Um, if he was, if he was capable of not being himself all the time, like I would love to cast someone like Goldblum, who still is, I think, very well put together despite being older than Alan is really, he's almost 70. Mm -hmm. But like, I also don't need the Goldblumisms in this, like, um, I um, want to um, drink your blood. <laughs> like, we can't do that. So, um, so that's, that's tough. Uh, it would be fun. It would be fun to drag Nick Nolte's old ass to play that character. He actually looks a lot like Alan now with his huge thick neck and things like that. Uh, his neck that is basically like four penises stacked together. Um, <laughs> And then as it comes to Scott slash Terry, uh, <laughs> it's hard for me not to say like Evan Joja, the guy from Now Apocalypse, because I just think that he's like, he looks like every like out of work actor in their mid twenties that is Instagram hot. But I do think he did very good in that show. So my answer for him is, is, is Evan Joja. And he's in the um, Resident Evil movie that's coming out. Nice. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, it's my turn. Yeah, so, it is. Go dumb... for it. Well, you... shut up. All right. <laughs> so I recently mentioned on our podcast that I hate female characters wearing neon red wigs to show how badass they are as a trope. Do you have any tropes that you hate in comics, movies, etc.? And are there other ones that you avoid at all costs in your work? I didn't even know that was a trope. There, it... I've seen it at least six times, and it's exhausting. So yeah. just to give a, the reason is because to, the new Batman yeah. just trailer came out and and um Selena Kyle puts one on to go into a club and you know blah blah blah. Really, 
Uh, I didn't even, now I'm going to see it everywhere. Probably. I assume that this, you were just like, like throwing some subtle shade at Batwoman uh, when you said that, but. Oh no. I didn't even think about that. That's just, that's her normal look. Well, this is a specific well, thing but that she happens. She does wear a wig over it because yeah. you know, it's like an action reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, tropes that I hate. Um, I don't, well, you know, you're talking about representation and I should only talk about, I shouldn't say hate, but I can talk about things that feel inauthentic to me because, you know, like someone else can be totally different, but like, I personally am never someone who like very self-referentially constantly announces my sexuality to people. And I feel like there is a class of representation where, you know, whether it's my folks who are outside the community or folks with a different perspective than me or experience than me, where people are just more than I would expect just being like, I'm just an old gay man girl. And I'm just like, I've, I've literally never like walked into a room and unironically at least, and just been like, just so you know, bisexual here. If you've got penises, I'm interested. Like it just doesn't happen, you know? So like, I, I find that very inauthentic for me. Um, I do hate when characters say this ends now, <laughs> but that's very specific. I would that like- happens a lot. I know, but like, do better, man. Um, like, I, I've, my, I'm very like neurotic, so the things that bother me, like, just are only things about. Like, I hate when Mark Miller has people call each other meatball, and only I care oh, that. I uh, hate it too. <laughs> like, you know, I hate when there. I hate when there's bad. I hate when there's bad color theory on drag queens. Uh, but you know, we're, we're talking about comics, I guess. Um, it's media. And I also like, it bumps me out when I can tell the creators have the best intentions, but having been behind the scenes, know that they were probably so behind deadline that they clearly should have been told about things uh, and weren't by editorial. And like, let me, having just said that like Grant's run on X-Men is my favorite, probably if not one of my favorites, let me also point out that they clearly were never told what Sebastian Shaw's actual powers are because in the Assault on Weapon Plus, he talks about being a telepath throughout the entire thing as if everyone in the Hellfire Club is a telepath. And I wasn't even angry at Grant because I've been there, you know? I mean, not as a kid, I wasn't there, but now I have. Like someone should have just been like, you know what? Like these are just not like, that's just not what he does, you know? But, but they were just rubber stamping it. So I guess that bothers me, like when people don't get characters' powers right, because this is like, it's like half of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, or when people don't understand how certain characters' powers work, like now you really got me going. You know, you'll see a lot of that in <laughs> tempo. You'll see a lot of that in tempo because like time powers are not time and space powers. And half the time, like it doesn't matter who it was because I'm not trying to bury them on a podcast, but I had a friend who created a new character with time powers. And he was like, well, he only has to put uh like one bullet he only carries one bullet around for his gun because he shoots it and then he subtracts the time on the gun and i was like okay but where does the mass for the bullet come from he still shot it like he can just make what's there older or younger but that bullet is still out in todd's Mm -hmm. ass you know like he and like he can't like unless he's also telekinetic or something he can't like you know, manifest that thing back there. Same with like when, um, uh, this is not, I mean, it's magic, so it's not a good example, but in like Thor Ragnarok, when like Strange makes the beer come back up, sometimes folks do things like that with time travel. They're like, oh, I turned the time back to when there was beer in there, but that beer is still in that character's stomach. So it's not like it, how does it get magically from their stomach 
into their glass. I feel like your eyes are glazing over, but this is what you did by asking me this question. No, no, no. Sorry. No, I was Brent was Brent was emailing me was messaging me something. About no, I'm what just saying these, like you got me going and these are the things that bother me. Like we get paid not terribly, not amazingly to do this job. Like think about how these powers work. And, 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 and it would make me so happy. <laughs> I, was getting, I was getting into your powers thing. What we, I mean, we, we always ask the question, like, if you had any powers, what would it be of an extant powers? And my answer is always neophytes, just because I like the, con the concept of, like, basically jumping through the rain or jumping through the air to get somewhere or basically having your, like, body chemistry, like, filtering things out on its own. And I get really into, like, these are all the different properties he could do, and he could do that and this, but obviously he's barely used and not interesting. And kind well, I mean, of ki listen, ki kitty, kitty fried light, but not. I mean, I have a thousand ways to kill Wolverine, too, but that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> Ever since I saw the doctor turn people's bones into lingerie and the authority, I was like, that wouldn't kill Wolverine, but it would definitely just turn him into an omelet, and that'd be very funny. <laughs> uh, Perfect. <laughs> Well, okay, yeah, that's another great exercise. Here we go, man. X-Men 3, The Last Stand. It doesn't fucking matter that Wolverine has an adamantium skeleton when Jean Grey can, like, pull people apart at the molecular level, okay? Like, adamantium is only indestructible if you're hitting it. Like, if you can just unravel the atoms of something, it doesn't matter if it's this can of seltzer, a milkshake, uh, Jigglypuff, or Wolverine. So the idea that they that whole movie like like Brett Radner who was like looked at a comic accidentally one time was just like, well it's indestructible so she's he's the only one that can kill her. Fuck off, Brett. I mean for any number of reasons, but like right. These are the things. See, you really hit a vein here. Just think no, about I like it. What, what we're really good. saying when we say these characters can do these things. Think about what <laughs> Look, we talk about when we talk about mutants. We go on rants about all kinds of things just on our regular podcast. I went off on a rant about how in the latest issue of Inferno, Charles and Magneto have the shittiest whip operation because they can't count votes. And like I work in politics in my day job and I'm like, how did you not count this vote before it happened? So uh, I love that like there are tr the certain things that are just like bugaboos for you. They're just tropes that you don't really like. So um, no, I think it's great. I kind of want to move on a little. Like, can you just like send a horse head to Joe Manchin for me then? Uh, oh yeah, for and Kristen Cinema, Cinema I, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but yeah, I've I've got all kinds of uh, tricks and treats up my sleeves for both of them, hopefully. Um, but moving on a little bit, um, you know, uh, as readers, as like amateur critics and podcasters, I sort of see, um, you know, like I've been reading comics for a while, but like like you know, you start seeing sort of trends that happen in comics, and like we sort of like are at a crossroads, and I feel like we're kind of one there right now. Um, you as a creator, do you have any crystal ball predictions of where you think the industry is going? It's, it, I mean, no, you know, because I mean, a, a while ago I would have said, I mean, I think it's very good, for example, that companies have left Diamond Comics. Uh, and that's not any particular slight against Diamond other than in all situations, a monopoly is bad. Uh, so, so the fact that they had complete control and now they have to compete is going to make them better. And it's also going to make Penguin Random House better. These are all boring answers, but that, that, that was the first thing that came to mind. But the thing about saying that is how many unforeseen factors are we going to have in the next, you know, in the next, our lifetime? I would never would have predicted that we would, you know, who could have predicted, uh, in this sense, you know, the way that we'd be dragging on the pandemic so long that now it's like, will we have enough paper for our comics? And if we mm -hmm. have enough paper, right. 
Will we have enough cardboard to ship the comics? And if we have both of those things, because people are idiots about vaccines, will we have enough workers to print the comics? These are all things that you know we're dealing with now that I never thought I would have to deal with. So um, I, I, what I will say is really coming is, is a further diversification of delivery streams for this content. And you've seen it with Comixology Originals. You've seen it with these Substack uh, deals that creators are doing. I think you're just going to see more and more. Uh, I'm probably going to be the first person like doing comics on Grindr. Uh, but <laughs> on, you know, on on Kalen's um, Grinder page, it, it I mean, I honestly, almost superior. My my reviews when I what, what my own reviews when I was on Grinder were so rough, like I could never put a fucking comic on there. Actually, that's the real answer. But uh, <laughs> but that said, like I think that is going to have to happen because it it the ripple effect with these distribution channels breaking down is so wide. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't matter where it is, but I, I, I've had a bunch of pitches into different publishers and who previously would approve things like two or three books at a time. And now they're saying, well, I mean, we may like all these, but we don't, we can't even approve them all now because we don't even know if we're going to be able to distribute and print the one that we're doing right now. So we can't even think about the future. And so that leads to more instability in our lives as creators, obviously your lives as readers too. So I think finding new ways that we can get around that is going to happen and it's going to keep, it's going to keep happening and you're going to keep seeing new places trying to do comic content and some will succeed and some will fail. That's how it goes. Um, but I think so much of the pandemic, whether it's a distribution channel, whether it's our raw materials, whether it's our, our workforce has revealed the weaknesses that at least not in all cases we could, we would have predicted two years ago. So uh, you will probably see comics in places that you wouldn't expect from people who you wouldn't predict. And I think that that's a good thing, like I said, because if anything, it's going to light a fire under the asses of, of, of the of places like the big two and places that are still doing it in a, in a um, traditional sense. Um, so we've already talked about some influence you've had. 15% um, of my DNA comes from Amy Sedaris's Strangers with Candy. So what are some of your cultural influences and references that have impacted you or developed you as a creator? Uh, I mean, I'll answer this and it'll it'll be proven why my lit agent says I'm the gay bro of comics. I mean, never never mind that I don't, I, you know, that, I, that I'm actually the bisexual bro of comics, but I, I take that anyway. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, for me, it is all it is all just like the biggest douchebag answers. Like every book I'm writing is a version of Die Hard in many cases, uh, including Kate Pride, who is kind of like a Jewish phasing John McClane. So um, but yeah, I mean, my touchstones are, it is, it is, it is stuff like Die Hard. It is stuff like, I mean, like the Dollars Trilogy, uh, and that comes more in how I lay out a page or, or, or tell a story, like, uh, but also Kurosawa, you know, like not just the, not just Sergio Leone ripping off Kurosawa, but original things like Yojimbo, um, which I think is nearly perfect, um, and, and on top of that, you have like, what I would say lovingly are like very pulpy type uh, creators uh, like John Carpenter, stuff like Phantasm. Mm -hmm. Like I like messy stuff that people made just because they had to make it, you know? And maybe it's not the most polished thing, but it's very real and passionate to me. So uh, I either like, you know, like action that is expertly told 
uh, with dialogue that I, I just find envious. Like anytime someone gets a better quip than me in a movie or a book, like I'm furious. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that scene where like, see in, uh, you know, Fistful of Dollars where, uh, you know, he just, uh, he's walking up to that fight. Like he's walking up to that first fight where he's showing off and he's telling the coffin maker to make three coffins and then he counts wrong. So he's back and it's like, oh, sorry, make that four. Like it's all about the delivery and everything, but it's so perfect for me. And I always remember when I came on Midnighter, um, I reread all the other stuff that had been done with him, which wasn't hard. It was only like 30 issues. Um, and Garth had what I think is maybe the best Midnighter scene that I didn't write that was not him telling Dick Grayson by his ass. Uh, but in Garth's run, I mean, maybe it's maybe even issue one, he goes and he's fighting some insurgents or like some sorts of people, it doesn't matter. It's knowing Garth, it was probably, it's probably not aged well as to who he was fighting at the time. But the key is that the scene, regardless of what happens is, is like he brutalizes this guy and he breaks off the top half of his middle finger. And the guy tries to give him the middle finger with his little stump and Midnighter's <laughs> line is, and Midnighter's line is just, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to speak up, which is so fucking good. Uh, and so like things like that in like enrage me that I didn't think of them, but that is this type I gravitate from, or, you know, like, that's why I love uh, Assault on Precinct 13. That's why I love, uh, Escape from New York. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Uh, and, and, and a lot of early John Carpenter stuff. Um, and there's a similar, like they are, they are, it's pulp storytelling that makes no bones about what it is and isn't ashamed of it. It's, it's happy to be pulp and happy to be kind of lo-fi and raw. So we always end these podcasts with really dumb stuff. So you're ready for dumb stuff. Um, this is also, <laughs> So this is per being edited. We're in what our least favorite Homo Superior podcaster, Ryan Kroll, one of our friends who we don't like, calls Spoopsy Halloween Season, which is a name I hate. And the listeners don't know yet, but we've recorded this conversation before Halloween, but you're going to be listening to it after Halloween. So you're also listening to the past and we're all dead. So Steve, what are you doing for Halloween? Uh, well, something we didn't talk about is that uh, I this month I did a takeover of heavy metal with the Boulet brothers uh, who do drag oh, wow. yeah. and, Net and, and Netflix, depending on the season. And so they actually are doing a Halloween ball in Boston where I live and uh, yeah. very, very generously said that my boyfriend and I could come. So that is where I will be. Uh, at, at the, Adam's uh, gonna be mad. <laughs> well, pick up the issue. It's got stories by me, the Boulets, uh, my friend Danhausen, who's a spooky pro wrestler, Steve Fox, but also Alaska Five Thousand, um, Katya Zemolochkova, Evie Oddly, and then also uh, American Horror Story director uh, Axel Caroline, who's awesome as well. I just did the and just did a, a movie called The Manor, which is on Amazon Prime. So uh, that, that's what we did for Halloween. We took over heavy metal and that's what I'm doing for Halloween. I'm going to the big party. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, we'll see. I don't know what, it's, I don't know what to expect. I, I hope to get a little less moist than at like a Guar concert, but who knows? And are you going to dress it. up? Uh, it's debatable. I mean, so first of all, I, I am kind of a stick in the mud for Halloween. So, you know, come at me at the mentions. Uh, <laughs> I would rather be like spooky and cute than have some sort of bizarre like box on my head or something. 
But I did buy, we actually, the Boulets actually sell like Boulet Brothers fright masks. So it may be like bad Halloween sweaters. Like we're talking things that are made exclusively of sequins and then these Boulet masks. But there's a world where we're going to be David and Patrick from Schitt's Creek too, because I basically just am David from Schitt's Creek in the mm -hmm. way I dress anyway. So my only fear is that people wouldn't know it was a fucking costume. I mean, you are yeah. wearing only black and white right now. So it makes sense. And it's a long line shirt too, which you can't see. And also my boyfriend is a, is a medical music teacher. So he just looks like Patrick when he goes to school every day anyway. So uh, yeah, the only issue with that is that it might be too easy. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's a good example though. I'm sure Moira Rose, if she had to fight, would put on a red wig so she could kick ass and then you'd have to not watch that show. True. No, I would suddenly hate that show. It'd be upsetting. Had to be neon Correct. red though. Normal red, I'm good. All right, we're going to play a really quick game called Pick One, Kick One. I wanted to play Fuck, Mary Kill, but we were told to keep it classy. So I'm going to give you two options, and I mean, you pick one really I, quickly. I, I Blame it on Brent. Um, but, okay, so there are right and wrong answers, apparently, but we're not going to tell you. So Jean Grey or Madeline Pryor? I have to say, I have to tutor boot it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I pick Madeline Pryor. Kaylin, do you just say uh, they're right and wrong answers? That's the right answer. That's the right answer. Uh, Moira McTaggart or Destiny? Oh, Moira is like straight evil now that you guys have read Inferno. So clearly Moira. I think that's the right. I think that's the right. That's the way I pick, probably. No, that's. Yeah. All, I mean, like, I, I'm. I'm just trolling. Yeah. She, she has well, gone full evil, but like, I'll play the game and say Moira. The next one I added because I thought it was fuck Mary kill. So, Kaylin, go ahead. Uh, Human Torch or Hercules? I assume you mean the one and only Human Torch, Jim Hammond, and my yeah. answer will be. <laughs> Do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a synthesoid man. He's got stamina for days. So yes, yeah. I would. <laughs> Perfect. So Jim Hammond, human, Jim Hammond, uh, Human Torch. All right. Uh, Wonder Woman or Black Canary? And we're, and we're still essentially, uh, I mean, that's a trap because I wrote them both and loved them both. Um, that's Kaylin's fault. That's my, that's my, my. And it's not fuck, marry, kill, which is the issue because you obviously you want to marry Wonder Woman, but you want to hook up with Black Canary. You could only probably do it once because you'd be devastated. Your pelvis would just be like vaporized. So uh, <laughs> I, I got to go Diana, though. Like she's my one of my favorite characters that I've ever written. So I got to go with Diana. I'm not going to say if it's the right or wrong one. We're just going to move on. Uh, Rebecca Romaine or Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique? Oh, that's easily Rebecca Romaine. Like, I don't even have to. Oh, like her sliding, like, fucking off. Yeah, That's how I best. leave every room. That's how I'm going to leave the <laughs> podcast. Adam is going to be so upset he's not on this. That's his favorite scene in any movie. All right. X-Men the Animated Series or X-Men Evolution? Actually, that's also not fair because I've already revealed that the answer is that fucking pilot for me. Um, my, my answer is um, Wolverine and the X-Men. So I, so I like I, I listen, okay, so like I have I have a soft spot in my heart for evolution, and Mike and I are, are re-watching it because it, it's it's nostalgia, but it's gotta be X-Men the animated series. Now now that I've watched them both in tandem, I'm actually shocked how aggressive the it, it like the 90s one addresses bigotry uh versus x-men evolution so it, that the it is x-men animated 
as much as I have a soft spot for evolution, uh, especially its version of Beast, um, it, it's got to be, it's got to be the, what is it, 92? The 92 one. All right. And the and least I'm going to let Clark do the last one. Yeah. yeah the least so. important question is rabbits or guns? Say that again. Rabbits or guns? You heard it. No, but I just want to make sure you said that because I don't know if folks know, but I actually have a pathological fear of rabbits. So oh, no, answer. I didn't. And I, you know what? I did. Maybe. Maybe I didn't know so, that. So the I answer knew. is definitely guns because if every rabbit died tomorrow, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be too soon. They're a pestilence. Uh, <laughs> I, I really do hate rabbits. <laughs> I, I like, we're talking like deep in my bones fears, but it's only for domesticated ones, I should say. I don't mind seeing them in the wild. But those like ones that are basically like dupe and they just like blob around and you can't see where their parts are. Like, I really like, oh, even thinking about them now, they're huge. You know, they have oh, no. the dewlap. They can basically put the rest of their chin on their neck because they have that like, like bullfrog-like tumorous <laughs> mass. Uh, I truly loathe domesticated rabbits. And I'm I sorry for anybody. I respect anybody who does like them, but don't bring that shit around me. Okay, like I just I don't want to be. I have a rabbit in my freezer right now from having a bad day. Uh, <laughs> I just need some Schadenfreude. That's perfect. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Steve <laughs> really fucking hates rabbits. Pathologically hates they, them. They terrify me. They're one of the worst creatures. Um, they kind of are. They're kind of creepy. Uh, but uh, we're at the end of our podcast. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to Marauders. You're, you're kicking it off with annual number one in January. We can't wait to review it on our podcast. Um, anything else that you want to plug uh, that we didn't talk about and where can folks find you on social media? <sighs> well, you can find me at the Steve Orlando on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you know, as, as you alluded to, there's a slight Venn diagram. You get more comics on Twitter and you get slightly more exercise in me if I'm feeling good about myself, taking my shirt off on, on Instagram, but you could do get both on both. It's just where you get more of either. Um, what else do I want to plug? It's, I would say, watch me in Marvel. Like I'm working on a couple things, both in the X-Men office and that are broader reaching that haven't been announced yet. Uh, one of which I guess I will tease is going to uh, send another character back to join the Marauders, either from the past or the future. Um, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, but as well, you should check out Darkhold, uh, which is running right now. It is, I'm, I'm super proud of that. Uh, it's just, I mean, for a character who has so long been defined by suffering, this is about Wanda getting some agency and taking control in her life. And yes, it's comics. It is ironic that due to the pandemic, she finishes Darkhold, turns a corner and gets murdered in Trial of Magneto, but that's comics, man. Uh, I'm just talking, I'm just talking about this story and, and I actually, I, I've been loving what Leah is doing, uh, and it's been very inventive in Trial of Magneto. So, but check out Darkhold, amazing art by Kian Tormi, beautiful, like Lovecraftian body horror one shots in between. And when the Omega issue comes around, there will be uh, a surprise hiding in plain sight. And there will also just be Wanda and Doom having a final showdown with Kathan, uh, something that I think is long overdue. So Get your eyes on that. And uh, otherwise, watch me in 2022, man. You're going to keep seeing me in places uh, that you would never expect. And, and, and as long as I'm around, that's the way it's going to be. Well, uh, as for us, uh, we're on Twitter at Homosphere X and Instagram on Homosphere Podcast. And if there's any other creators you want to uh, have us chat with, just slide into our DMs. 
and we've been Home Superior. Thanks for listening.